This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Thank you for being here. Great to have you. Uh, sorry about yesterday. Those of you who were listening, uh, the first hour was live. We were rocking as usual, and then we, we had just complete tech meltdown. I'm not saying it's the Russians, but I'm not, not saying it was the Russians. Uh, so maybe they... If you listen to the Democrats now, of course, they cost Hillary the election. They might have cost me a couple of hours of phenomenal radio. Very upsetting. We were going we to have a historian of food flavors on the show. We'll hopefully get her on another time. She's very busy. She's a new book out. Had all kinds of fun planned. But then, you know, Cousin Yuri and the rest of them, they decided it was time to um, shut down the Freedom Hut, the Buck Sexton show. I don't know why. My Russian is just more and more turning into my Transylvanian. I need to listen to some Russian tapes or something on audio. So there's that. So if you're wondering where the podcast was yesterday, apologies. I don't think we I don't know if we have one up or not, but we the first hour of the show definitely worth listening to if you can get that. And then the rest of it was uh we had to do to emergency audio. So and unfortunately our emergency audio was uh, the aftermath of a terrorist attack that happened many many months ago. So anyway, I know it was a, it was a we had a we had our cyber meltdown yesterday on the radio side, and uh, we got it fixed today. We are good to go, as you can tell. I'm here live, and now uh, it's like I'm making one of those you know hostage videos or something. It is December fourteenth, Wednesday of 2016. Uh, so I am here. I am live. We are good. We're good, team. All systems go. Eight 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 nine hundred three three nine three. By the way, on those phone lines, we haven't talked in days. So I look forward to the opportunity to get to chat with you quite a bit. So. Here's what we gotta. Here's what we gotta be ready for, because uh, it's happening right now. This is the biggest story this week by far. I know there's other stuff going on, and we got Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State. We can talk a bit about that. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's, yeah, worthy of our attention for sure. But you see what was happening before, and I was part of this, and I played the CNN audio for you yesterday. Was the creation of of a, of essentially a a news story with this dnc hack they wanted to get as much attention for it as possible and the way they do that first is and this is the how the game works okay it was all about election security and integrity it was all about democracy it was all about we need to come together in a bipartisan fashion and they love to cite john mccain by the way as though john mccain isn't the republican who before all others loves to sort of call out for you know I'm going to be honest with you, in a sort of sanctimonious way sometimes, how this is you know, it's a bipartisan issue and wants to get nice stuff written about him in the New York Times and the Washington Post. Uh, but yeah, investigate. Investigate away. Fine. Do, do all the investigating you want. Uh, 
the more we find out about this, the more we recognize that this wasn't some super sophisticated operation, the Russia hacking. Uh, and it does look like it's Russia, although we, we they don't reveal the specific evidence because of sources and methods concerns. But it's definitely um, a situation where the more you look at this, you see that there's not much that can be done to that's going to be done to prevent this kind of stuff. It's very hard to stop this. Uh, but but the first thing they had to do was get everybody to pay attention. And the way you get everybody to pay attention is to give sanctimonious lectures about how this is about the integrity of our democracy. This is about national security. It's bipartisan. Don't make this a partisan issue. Recognizing full well, of course, that they're going to make it a, a hyperpartisan issue. I mean, they're telling us not to make it a partisan issue while you've got the chair of the Clinton campaign Chairman of the Clinton campaign, a chair is an inanimate object. People say this now because they don't want to say chairman or chairwoman, but a chair is an object. It's not a person. So uh, saying that the electors should get this briefing because maybe just maybe they should change their minds at the last minute. And first of all, they're not going to you know, that's not going to do anything. But also what an embarrassment, you know, on on the one hand. and, And they act like these are there's Chinese walls or something that separate. And it's not a microaggression. It's a phrase. There are Chinese walls that separate out various aspects of the sort of Democrat, you know, infrastructure, the machinery from each other. So you got Podesta calling for something on the one hand, but, you know, that has nothing to do with what the media is reporting on the other. I mean, please, we saw all the collusion. We know what the different networks want and how they're going about it. You know, the the cat's out of the bag. We get it. Uh, But they were saying in the er you know, earlier on of the week that this was all about just getting to the bottom of it, right? We needed, we just need to find out the truth. This isn't a partisan thing. This isn't about... Now you've got a huge piece in the New York Times and many, many thousands of words. I mean, it's going to take you a while to read through it, but I, I recommend you do. And we can, We'll post it up on facebook.com slash and just so you have it handy. And first of all, they liken the cyber hack to Watergate, right? So they're they're explicitly now trying to tie this to Republican malfeasance in the past, right? Oh, it's just this, this. This is the digital version of Watergate, which is nonsense. Um, they also throw the FBI under the bus in a few places, which is pretty, I guess, to be expected. But they said the end. The FBI didn't move fast enough on this, and you know, one thing that does come out in this very long piece, the title of which is "The Perfect Weapon: How Russian Cyber Power Invaded the United States." One thing that comes out is that. There are cyber intrusions going on. All There are so many cyber intrusions that it's tough to keep track of them. And it's also difficult, really, to respond to them effectively. You know, what is the FBI exactly supposed to do? I mean, they have, yeah, they have digital forensic resources. They will try to figure out what's going on here. And, and in this case, they it all goes back to a hacking group that's named as the Dukes in this. Personally, I'm, I, I think a much cooler name is Fancy Bear. I mean, if, if you're going to get hacked by somebody, don't you want to get hacked by a bear that wears an ascot and has a monocle and walks around with a cane and just says, oh, hello. Uh, but yeah, fancy bear is much better. Uh, so they go into this very, very long piece, and there is some fascinating stuff that this, uh, that this talks about, this New York Times piece. Um, first of all, the hack gives you this idea that you have a bunch of Russian computer geniuses in some high-tech facility somewhere 
who are doing a sort of brute force attack. And it's like they're in the Matrix, right? All these zeros and ones going across the screen. Matrix is an amazing movie, by the way. First Matrix is phenomenal. Uh, still, it holds up. It's amazing. That, you know why, by the way? Side note, didn't rely on uh, too much CGI. CGI ruins movies these days. Personal opinion, put that aside. It's not like they're sitting around there with zeros and ones, though. They just try to come up with social engineering schemes, right, through social engineering, which is basically a fancy way of saying trying to trick people, knowing that people are people, trying to find ways to get into their system by getting them to give access to the system. Well, how do you do that? Maybe you send them an email. You say, hey, your Gmail account's been hacked. You need to reset the password. Click here. And people clicked on it. And by people, I mean, according to the New York Times here, John Podesta, chairman of the DNC, or not chairman of the DNC, that Debbie Washburn, chairman of the Clinton uh, campaign. So it was a phishing thing, just like I told you with the Nigerian 419 scams. It was a, a phishing, PH phishing, like PHAT fat. Remember when that was a thing? When you said PHAT fat and that meant cool? That didn't last very long. Uh, it was a phishing scam that worked. So how do you prevent... That from happening in the future. I mean, you know, what's the congressional report on that going to look like? Don't click on links sent from senders you don't know that say, hey, give me your password. He actually he actually responded to that email with his password. And if you didn't think that was enough incompetence on the part of the DNC, get into and I want also want to get into, by the way, the whole this is the truth that we learned about the DNC. It's not like this was disinformatia. Disinformatia? Is that how we say it? It's fun to say disinformatia, but I think it's disinformatia, uh, disinformation from the Russians. No, it was just information. Illegally obtained, but the New York Times, the Washington Post, they usually love illegally obtained information. So that, now this is bad. They love publishing Trump's tax returns. That was awesome, brah. That wasn't supposed to happen. That was wrong, and they knew it was wrong, but they went with it. Okay. I mean, not okay, but let's just put that one away for a second. You have Podesta giving the email to these Russian hackers, giving his email password, I mean, to these Russian hackers, and then they get access to, he also didn't clean out his Gmail account. He's got 60,000 or so emails, again, this is all in this Times piece, stretching back for years and years and years, and, oh, isn't it interesting, by the way, Hillary Clinton, all of her emails mysteriously had to be deleted. You'll notice that Podesta, with his personal account, no, it wasn't deleting. He didn't delete 30,000 emails out of the blue, did he? Why did Hillary do that? Just as an aside, let's just take a moment. Let's take a little breather here. Interesting, isn't it? Hillary Clinton had to just do a complete erasing job of her emails. John Podesta is like, whatever, it's my emails. Like most normal people, it just doesn't really care. Maybe this is also something that reminds us all. I mean, maybe Gmail should give us all a function. You know what? I want all emails you know, before X year deleted and irretrievable. This is where we're heading, by the way. This is sort of an aside, maybe a, a digital philosophical note here. But the ability to both uh, regain some level of anonymity on the Internet and to get rid of personal data in a way that it really isn't retrievable, except I would assume by extraordinary means. People want that now more. They're, they're going to have to find ways. They're going to have to come up with algorithms uh, that can I know people are going to tell me buckets about it exists on so many different places. I understand that, and the complexity, the the uh, computer complexity is way beyond my understanding. I mean, I if my smart TV doesn't give me Netflix within two clicks of a button, I'm like, what's going on? I I have a meltdown. And a smart TV is definitely smarter than I am. 
Still don't have cable, but I've got internet, so I can watch Netflix and Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime's great, by the way. So you got Podesta giving away his, giving away his, his password. It was a really stupid move. You know, I'll be honest. Clicking a link, I've, I've, you have a little sympathy for that, right? Because there, there are things that have gone around on Facebook and, and other places, too, that'll say, you know, hey, really important news for you. Um, you know, I, I need you to, you know, from your IT thing, I just need you to click here real quick. I mean, I, I understand if you're in the midst of writing, reading lots of emails, writing lots of emails, maybe you slip on that. But sending someone in a reply, hey, here's my email password. Like, mm, I don't know about that. That's pretty weak sauce. That's pretty JV, even for Podesta. But then you get into this other thing. This was, this was fascinating. Um, a Clinton campaign aide replied to one of Podesta's emails. This is from the New York Times piece. This is a legitimate email. John needs to change his password immediately. Uh, with another, this is a quote from the piece. With another, click of, with another click, a decade of emails that Mr. Podesta maintained in his Gmail account, a total of about 60,000 were unlocked for the Russian hackers. Mr. Delavan, in an interview, said that his bad advice was a result of a typo. He knew this was a phishing attack, and the campaign was getting dozens of them. He said he had meant to type that it was an illegitimate email, an error that has plagued him ever since. This guy's saying he confused the words legitimate and illegitimate, which I suppose one could do, but that seems a bit strange to me. And... That led to Podesta being told, yeah, change your password immediately, i.e. give it to the system administrator. Wow. This is a level of stupid. This is a level of, of, of dumb that you don't see all that often. This is really bad. But let's just, why am I telling you? Why are we getting details? Why am I telling you about this? Because we're being told that this is all about American national security and we need to prevent the next one and everything else. It's a phishing attack, everybody. This is like as old as the. This is as old as email. Podesta got fooled, gave his password over. Now, and it looks like these uh, this Russian hacking group or collective or whatever we call it was able to trick him pretty easily, and then they got access to sixty thousand of his emails. But now the New York Times is writing about this like it's on a par with, you know cyber hacking of national defense secrets, breaking into classified information servers and everything. You know, this is all just a part of all that. And no, this is just old school email trickery. Democrats fell for it. What's the, and they knew it was going on for months, by the way, they knew this, that, that Russians had, uh, Russian hackers had gained access to the systems and were going through it for a long period of time, scraping around, looking for more and more information. And, you know, I've got it. I also want to get it. There's so much here. All right. I'm going to take a pause just because I'm running into the next break or running in the next segment. I want to talk to you about also what this information was and more of the motivations. And this is all this fascinating, fascinates me. Um, this is they're They're making it sound like this was cyber 9-11. I mean, you have former CIA. Uh, well, he was acting director, Mike Morrell, saying this is the political equivalent of 9-11. That's just insane. That's just a that's just a crazy statement. That's just a whiny, sour grapes commentary on Hillary Clinton losing the election. I'm not saying this was I'm not saying that this was okay in the sense that we should encourage hacking, but this really wasn't as big of a deal as everybody's trying to make it out to be when you really dig into the details. That is what I'm saying. Didn't change the didn't change the election outcome, and if it did, it only changed the election outcome because we knew more about the Democrats than we would have before then. 
basically the Russians had a better October surprise for Hillary than the mainstream media had for Trump. That's what it really comes down to. All right, go into a break. We'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network. Sponsor this half hour is Super Beats. Team Beats are a nutrition goldmine. They're rich in vitamins, minerals, electrolytes, and dietary nitrates. Now, you've heard me talk about it before, but it's important to reiterate that dietary nitrates convert to nitric oxide in the body, which is the secret to why it works so well for you. Nitric oxide can help boost circulation and maintain healthy blood pressure levels. You can get the benefits of three whole beets, which is where you can find all that wonderful, nutritious goodness in just one teaspoon of Super Beets with no beet taste. feel confident telling my listeners about this because whenever I take Super Beets, I get a boost of energy. It tastes delicious. You can put it in water, put it in a smoothie. goes right down, and you will really enjoy it. Get uh, a, Take uh, your phone. <laughs> Pardon me. Uh, call 800-311-4367 or go to teambuckbeats.com. You get a 30-day supply free. It comes with your first order and is backed by a money-back guarantee. Also receive a free book, Beat the Odds, and free shipping on your entire order. You'll love the results you feel with your first free canister, guaranteed, or your money back. 800-311-4367, teambuckbeats.com, 800-311-4367, or teambuckbeats.com. Booyah. All right, back to Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear. There's got to be an amazing cartoon out there somebody can make about Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear, right? Cozy Bear probably has like – these are the names of Russian hacking collectives that have been known for a while in the sort of cyber community. But you feel, I feel like Cozy Bear walks around in an apron, you know, with like a – sort of like a bonnet on and, and grandma glasses and it's just handing everybody warm cookies all the time. And, you know, I'm Cozy Bear. And Fancy Bear, like I said, monocle, top hat, cane, walking around, being all fancy and whatnot, drinking lattes, driving around and – What's the not the the Prius is like the is the green energy uh, sort of show that's for green energy for what, what's the for the fancy the Tesla there we go driving around in a Tesla because that's what the really fancy people do so the uh, back to this New York Times piece because this is their whole this is now the case right this is now the whole case that this was a huge Russian complex Russian cyber operation against the DNC. And they did all this terrible stuff, and this was the political equivalent of 9-11 and blah, blah, yada, yada. Uh, I want, you know, I'm going to have to spend a little time with you going through what we actually learned from this. But I, I can also say this to you. I knew when I was in the CIA, for example, that particularly any .gov, because, you know, you have unclassified government email, anything we put in a .gov email could be subpoenaed. Could be, uh, you know, on the open, unclassified side, you have no, you have no secrecy protection, right? You know, it could be subpoenaed, uh, could be hacked into, could, and we always knew that, you know, you had to be really careful about that. And even in internal communications on the high side, there were certain things that you wouldn't want to get into. I mean, look, there are certain things you just don't put in email. You just, we all know that. We should know that now. I mean, I hope they're teaching kids this in school. You know, just certain things you only want to say. And uh, you want to say it face-to-face, and that's the way it should be in the intelligence community now, and that's the way that you know certain DNC operatives and such should, I would imagine, 
conduct themselves. There's nothing really that that damaging in these emails other than the affirmation of much of what we already knew, which is that the DNC is was uh, an appendage of the Clinton campaign, and they're a bunch of really kind of just venal, annoying people. More coming. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Josh in California, you're on the Buck Sexton Show. Welcome. How you doing, Buck? Shields high. Shields high. So the question I have for you is, I know, you know, everyone's talking about how Russia potentially, you know, most likely hacked into the election. However, you know, whether or not they were able to influence the American people or not doesn't uh, really matter at this point. But why can't we just kind of start to get along with Russia? Because are we just going to fight with them for the next, 150 years and just kind of go back and forth like because the reason i'm asking you is because you have a vast knowledge of you know national security so why can't we just get along with them could everybody hear uh, john can you hear josh it's very soft for me but i want to make sure everyone here heard the question can john could you hear him okay everyone can hear him good all right uh josh you raise a very interesting question and that is well first of all before i address the question directly You'll notice the Democrats all of a sudden sound incredibly hawkish about Russia, right? Now, Russia is this, uh, this menace, this threat. Anyone with ties to Russia is suspect in terms of being yeah. a senior government official. Um, friendship with Russia is a bad idea, all this. This is the same administration that was just trying to give bro hugs to Castro and to the mullahs in Tehran all the time, right? So, mm-hmm. so let's, just, let's just start there, this notion that we should just think of Russia as an irredeemable enemy. Um, you can make that case, but Democrats can't because Democrats don't believe in irredeemable. They believe that, you know, we've we have sinned. We have wronged. We have done things in the world that have made people not like us. It's our fault yeah. that this is happening the way that it is, um, that these countries have these relationships. It's previous dumb administrations before President Obama came on the scene that created many of these problems. Right. So start with that. And then you raise the issue of, OK, what do we do? In response to these cyber intrusions, it's a very complicated question. I mean, the DNC cyber intrusions are much less uh, troubling to me than what the what the sort of cyber defense community has been looking at for a long time, which is how do we protect critical infrastructure? How do you protect classified information? How do you protect the things that foreign governments really want to get access to? You know, an embarrassing email from Debbie Wasserman Schultz may be the end of the world to Democrat-leaning newsrooms and to DNC officials and such, but and you know to Clinton campaign people, but for the rest of us, we want to make sure that the the Chinese can't turn off the lights, the power grid, and you know all of our defense systems, for example. I mean that that's what we're really concerned about. As to how we go forward with the Russians, it's a very interesting question because they've shown. Look, the Russians still have a lot of nuclear missiles, and I don't think that that really factors into this discussion much more than to say that clearly. You know, they're not they're not going away and they have their own interests. They're pursuing them because of their natural uh, natural resource wealth. Even with the sanctions we've put on them, uh, they're going to continue to be a big player in, in Europe and, and really in all the sort of former Soviet sphere. 
So you can take what's the position going to be that we're going to just uh, try to snub Putin? We're going to ignore Russia. We're going to I mean, do we want to treat Russia like an enemy? Because the Democrats now are sounding more and more like they want to treat Russia like an enemy state. That's a different yeah. position than uh, Putin is an opposition to many in opposition to many of our policies and is a dangerous actor on the global scene and needs to be reined in and we need to work with him in some places and try to stop him, uh, outflank him or smack him down on others. Right. Russia is an enemy state seems to be the tone right now from a lot of Democrats. And it's clearly because they are they're still in sort of a denial about the election. I think I think they, there's some Democrats who believe they were going to be, you know, undersecretary for whatever who are waking up and just don't believe what happened happened. So I think that yeah, that's, and that, that raises interesting questions, Josh, for, you know, what, what do we do with Russia now? The fact that Tillerson yeah, has a friendship exactly. with Putin is viewed as a, as a huge negative. Okay, um, do we want somebody to be interacting with Putin as our Secretary of State who's called him a thug and, and a kleptocrat and a, a murderer? That's not going to get us very far, is it? I mean, I, I don't know. Um, you can take it's just interesting to see the Democrats who are always the ones that are reaching out to despots and want to coddle them and be friends with them. With Russia, Russia is the exception now. Kim Jong Un, who's starving his own people and running concentration camps and working on his nuclear missile technology all the time and may actually use it at some point in the future. You know, we got to talk to him sometimes. But, you know, Russia increasingly is uh, or Putin is persona non grata and the Russian people. You start hearing like the Russian people are not our friends. That's even a change in rhetoric. Usually, we just we just refer to the regime that way, the ruling, uh, the ruling body or the ruling individual. We don't refer to the people. Yeah. You know, we always say the Iranian people are our friends. The Iranian government is our enemy. In Russia now, we're just kind of going into this Cold War mindset of well, it's it's like a reconstitution of the Soviet Union. So, am I am I getting? I know I'm bouncing around a lot, Josh. Is that is? Do you have a follow up? Am, am I giving you something of an answer? I know I'm. Making a lot of no, absolutely. I feel like you know that's a good. Basically, it's more of I think what you're saying is there's kind of personal feelings against Russia. Is that what I'm kind of following? There's some personal background that that's why they don't get along with Russia. And if we have the right people, maybe we can start to build that relationship. I mean, yeah, I think I think there's a chance to try and and see more common ground. Maybe on some look on some issues with Putin, we're not going to have common ground. It's just not going to happen. We have, yeah, a, you know, we have a very strong difference of opinion, for example, and that's a very gentle way of putting something that's a really serious issue. But, you know, they think that Ukraine is a Russian satellite state and that we meddle in Ukraine and that we are boxing them in. I mean, Russian, it's actually fascinating if you look at it historically, Ru- Russian and Soviet, I'll use those interchangeably for these purposes now, territorial insecurity has been a major motivator of their policies uh, and their and their actions for a long time. Uh, they've been worried about, you know, we see it as this huge state with tremendous resources. I mean, when I mean huge state, I mean, actually, literally, the, the country is enormous. But they see oh, yeah. it as they've got Japan and China as enemy states that they've had to fight with in the past you know, to the east. Uh, they have you know, they have sort of the Middle East to the south, you know, and Muslim states to their south. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, and the sort of in the Caucasus region and, and also east towards the stands. Um, and then they have Europe with NATO boxing them into the west. So while we look at Russia and say it's a huge country, why would it have territorial insecurity? 
the Russian mindset is that, one, they've been sort of carved up in the post-Soviet era. They've lost a lot of Russian-speaking peoples, even in countries where they're the, they're the minority. And yeah. they are pursuing their interests at the expense of, you know, free elections and, uh, you know, economic prosperity in some of these countries. And, and they're causing problems in places like Ukraine. But as far as they're concerned, they're preventing the dismemberment of really the sort of Russian Orthodox civilization, which is how they view, they view themselves as the inheritors of Orthodox Christianity, really, uh, which is also why they have such close ties and, and involvement with Serbia and, and other countries that you, we may not initially think of as in the Russian sphere, but it definitely are. So we are, we're going to have to deal with them. There's, there's no like, hey, Ru- you can't put Russia in a box. Nobody puts Russia in a corner. Um, yeah. And I think that having somebody that has a relationship with Putin might be a better. We've tried the sanctions and browbeating from the international community. Has it changed, Josh, any Russian behavior whatsoever? I mean, you can answer that question for me. Uh, ask that one more time. Josh, uh, I, I didn't hear what you said, but I got I got to bounce. Thanks for calling in from uh, California. Tom, uh, John, what did he say? Oh, he wanted me to repeat the question. He didn't hear me either. All right, sorry about that. Um, yeah, this is this notion that we could sort of uh, push Russia aside, or that we can we can just you know a lot of people like to talk tough about Russia right now. Uh, what does that mean? What are we really going to do? It gets very cold in Germany around this time of year. Where do you think their natural thirty percent of their natural gas? Where does it come from? Russia. Uh, we don't want to get into a hot war with Russia over any of these issues, right? We're not looking to have U.S. tanks squaring off against Russian tanks anywhere. We also have obligations through NATO and to the international community, such as it is, to be willing to do that, though. This is sort of the conundrum in which we find ourselves. But I want to get back into the election hack and and how that all works. Uh, so let me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit the reset button here with the break. We'll come back and talk about what information was really released, and why is that not of concern, or you know, a, a highlight of these stories? Why aren't people talking about that more? Back in a few. Buck Sexton, Buck Sexton. dispensing the truth on the Blaze Radio Network. The Buck Sexton Show. Hacking happens all the time. Intrusions into computers. It's happening so frequently that we don't hear about it, and the FBI is overwhelmed, and we've got Cyber Command and the military trying to do stuff about it. But I said this to you before, and it will be years from now, I think, when it's a consensus conclusion. But we will wake up one day and realize that more information, sensitive information of all kinds, has been stolen from the United States via cyber intrusions alone in the Internet era than happened during the entirety of the Cold War. I mean, you might be able to make the case that's already happened now based on what's publicly known. Uh, and this, over the long term, I mean, what, what is our real advantage over other countries? Te- technology, innovation, trade secrets. Also, I guess you could say, confidence in our institutions, uh, but... That's, of course, at the center of this debate right now. There's this um, part of the discussion that doesn't get much attention, and I want to spend a couple minutes on it, and that is this. 
the media went all the way to the mat for Hillary Clinton. It didn't work. I mean, they completely sold out any pretense of objectivity with obviously the exception of one news channel, uh, one cable news channel. But everything else was just destroy Trump, destroy Trump. And it didn't work. All the newspapers and look, many within the Republican Party and within the conservative movement also were completely opposed to Trump. But they were doing so openly and on principled grounds. The media pretends to be journalists, right? They pretend to be objective truth tellers. It's one of the great jokes about media, this whole that they speak truth to power. I mean, most of the jur- most of the really prominent journalists I know, all they do is try to give power a constant foot massage. It's just gross. Uh, but we, we look now what the information was that was released. Why wasn't this stuff that and, you know, why wasn't this stuff that anybody was able to figure out or, or get in the first place? It, it took this Russian operation via WikiLeaks. And I know people still say you can't be 100 percent sure. Yeah, that even comes across in the Times piece. You're looking at a you're looking at a puzzle and you're coming to a conclusion about it. But they, they don't have some smoking gun. Russia did this. They just have a lot of circumstantial evidence about a whole bunch of stuff that when you put it together. Yeah, it looks like Russia was involved. OK, but what is the information that really came out there? Uh, so, you know, you assume that all this is true. There's an interesting piece by uh, Michael Tracy, who's a journalist. Uh, I've never heard of him before. I don't know anything about him, but. Uh, I saw this on Twitter, uh, and it's just posted on Medium.com. And he went through the results of the hack, the Russia hack. And he's, you know, what were the fruits of the offending hacking op? And he reviews them. You had the you had the resignation of Debbie Wasserman Schultz and the DNC right before the convention exposed as a pro Clinton organ, which is what, but, but it was. This is true. And I think we all knew that, but this just, the email showed us that. You had Donna Brazil, former fellow CNN commentator, by the way, uh, DNC vice chair, was giving debate questions to Hillary Clinton, so trying to stack the deck for her. Uh, it just shows you that the DNC and the Hillary campaign were effectively one, um, and they didn't want the public to really know that, but it was true. They released Hillary's transcripts of her speeches to Wall Street where it shows that she's a a lying phony who will say anything for money and change whatever she has to change at any point in time for political power. Okay. Uh, it, it showed a, some embarrassing communications here there. But, I mean, the main thing was that, you know, Bernie Sanders was getting the short end of the stick. I mean, Bernie Sanders was being, um, well, treated unfairly, I'll say it politely, by the DNC. Okay, we kind of all knew that. We know a bit more about this. And then there's the Doug Band email accusing Chelsea Clinton of being a brat. And when you really go through the the most potent emails that were released in all this, it's just not a national crisis. I mean, the information. This is not stuff that is wildly damaging. It's stuff that I think actually America, especially with the Hillary speeches, which she said she would release and then she reneged on that. Uh, it's stuff that American voters, I think, were it was better off knowing. So what do we do with that? The information that was out there was true information, gave us a better sense of who these people are running the Democratic Party and who Hillary Clinton is and her top aides. Well, we knew more. We had more information for making the decision. And I know people could say, you know, it's a little bit like this. Let me put it this way. 
you know, it's sort of like the the situation of a person, you know, a cheating spouse who has, let's say, you know, a, a husband has his wife go through his phone and finds out that he's having an affair. And then the husband turns around and just says, how dare you go through my phone? Agreed. The, that's that's a breach of trust. Or let's say it's dating, you know, not even let's not make it husband wife, you know. A boyfriend's girlfriend goes through his phone and finds out that he's cheating on her. Yeah, it's a breach of trust to go through the phone, but that he's cheating on her, information that probably should be had by the girlfriend. Uh, yeah, the Russians the Russians went through the phone, so to speak. Not nice, breach of trust, not right, and illegal. But the information that came out was pretty worthwhile stuff. So what, what are we supposed to make of that? In this New York Times piece, there's actually this sort of case made that the Clinton campaign thought that nobody should cover this information. I mean, what could be more 1984 than that? This stuff is out there, but nobody's allowed to talk about it because they don't like the way that it got out there. I thought journalists love their secret sources and they're exposing things and transparency and speaking truth to power. Not when it hurts Hillary Clinton. More coming. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. individuals and businesses with tax problems listen carefully if you owe over ten thousand dollars in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns we can help you take back control the irs is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world and they can seize your bank account garnish your paycheck close your business and file criminal charges take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at tax mediation services at 800-600-1645 that's 800-600-1645 Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, Team Buck, welcome back to the Hut. We're joined by our friend Andy McCarthy. Now he's a contributing editor at National Review, also a former federal prosecutor. Andy, great to have you, sir. Great, great to be with you, Buck. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. Uh, so the Russians are coming, Andy. The Russians are coming. New York Times, <laughs> full on panic. Freaking us all out. What did you make of this piece that says that the Russians deployed, as they write, the perfect weapon? Yeah, well, you know, I, I must say, I, I don't know if uh, life is long enough to read the whole New York Times report. Today. It was really it was long. Over, it's like 8,000 words, I think. But um, I, I'm just struck but by how the worm has turned, you know, for years, uh, decades. A number of us were uh, very concerned about the Kremlin and uh, espionage and and all that sort of good stuff. And the Times was the very model of uh, the progressive pieties that that uh, told us that the uh, you know the the worst thing you could be was an anti-communist. The anti-communists were a bigger threat to liberty uh, than uh, the the communists that they were so worried about. And the Times was basically the personification of the uh, anti-anti-communist. And now uh, it seems like, uh, you know, they're very, very upset and worried about uh, the Kremlin. And anybody who won't, uh, you know, doesn't have the verve 
to to take up uh, the cause of confronting our uh, enemies in the in the in Moscow who have stolen the election is a sort of a, a know nothing uh, uh, sympathizer of the, yeah, yeah, Russian of the enemy. I just I just can't. I mean, you know, I'm writing for National Review, as I, I uh, noted uh, tongue in cheek this morning. I think Bill Buckley must be smiling down someplace to see the role reversal because it really is quite striking. It does seem like there's been made there have been major cyber intrusions going on for years under this administration. Uh, the response has been anemic, uh, and, and now they're willing to say that, of course, because it benefits them. Look, Obama's leaving office; he wasn't good on cyber. They'll say that because it bolsters this narrative that Russia, really, what they're trying to get at is Russia through the U.S. election, right? I mean, I think we can all that's. Whether they're saying it or implying it, that's supposed to be the conclusion, that the takeaway from. Well, yeah, it, it, of course, if it, of course, if it were, uh, if they believed it were true, they would say it. Uh, the reason they're implying it is they, you know, they'll hope they hope that you'll skip over that little part where you have to connect up the evidence to the conclusion you want to draw. So they have a lot of evidence of uh, cyber espionage activity and hacking. Um, they have not nearly enough evidence that uh, actually they have no evidence that the election was actually tampered with. And I'm I'm struck by, by the fact that uh, in the waning weeks of the election and mind you, I have not exactly been like the world's biggest Trump supporter. Right. But in the waning weeks of the election, uh, Trump went on this narrative that the election was rigged. And he got pressed for, you know, well, what's your hard evidence of that? Show us that a single voting machine's been tampered with. Show us that anywhere there's been a flood of, uh, you know, people who are not qualified to vote who've been able to vote. And Trump's basically had to backpedal a bit and say, well, that's not what I meant by rigged. What I meant was that the the uh, coverage is hopelessly biased. And, you know, they all then sort of cheered that uh, he had made this outrageous allegation, but wasn't able to back it up with evidence. So what do we have here now? We have the Democrats coming out and saying the election was hacked. And they're now being asked hard questions. Well, you know, show us a single voting machine. It's not even possible, by the way, as I understand it, as a as a technical matter to hack an election because most of the system isn't even online. No, you, you need but, Russian you know, agents in a trench coat and a fedora going from machine to machine <laughs> Finding a port that they could, you know, that they could actually connect to with like a USB device or something and which don't even exist on these voting machines anyway. And they'd have to make sure they only did it in, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania. What I I think a fascinating part of this that gets overlooked, Andy, is that everybody thought Hillary was going to win. Look, I thought Hillary was going to win. Everybody thought Hillary was going to win. So the whole game here was the Russians were trying to specifically agitate the overwhelmingly likely future president of the United States, and that was the purpose here? I mean, th- th- that they would throw this Hail Mary to turn the election to Trump, which is, again, that that's the conclusion we're supposed to draw from all this stuff that's being presented in the media. It's like Putin has some sort of a crystal ball about the U.S. election that the rest of us don't. Yeah, and, you know, let's, uh, let's, let's even indulge that possibility, which I agree with you is, is absurd, but uh, suppose it was true. Suppose that, you know, Putin did have an idea of, you know, trying to throw the election one way. Um, 
you know, if he didn't tamper with the actual voting machines, then uh, so what? You know, the, the United States is the most consequential country in the world. There's a lot of uh, a lot of other countries for that reason uh, try to weigh in and influence the outcome of our elections. Uh, President Obama famously uh, tried to weigh in and influence the outcome of a number of foreign contests, like the Brexit vote and uh, the elections in Israel. This is what this is what nation states do. But again, I come back to the same point. If you haven't actually tampered with the election machines and you've just done an influence operation, how is what the Russians did, assuming it was aimed at the Democrats versus at the whole electoral system, let's assume that it was actually aimed at the Democrats to hurt them in particular, how is that any different than what the Republicans deal with with respect to the mainstream media? I mean, as I understand the complaint that's being made, it's that uh, what the Russians did was unfair because the Democrats got exposed and the Republicans didn't. Uh, the Democrats' email got uh, you know put out there for public consumption and the Republicans didn't. Well, you know if their if their complaint, and I'm not you know I'm not a fan of of uh, anybody getting hacked. I, I don't want to see it happen to anyone. But if their complaint is that there's too much true information out there about them and not enough about what about the uh, about their adversaries or that their uh, internal communications were scrutinized and the Republicans have gotten off scot-free that's what Republicans deal with every single day with respect to the media if the if you know if the complaint is that one side is subjected to a heightened level of scrutiny and the other one is given a pass uh, dear Democrats welcome to American politics from the other side Right, and it really, to me, also brings up issues like when there's a, a leak, and there were many leaks from in, from during the uh, time of the Bush administration. You know, if, if there's a leak that comes from inside that's meant to to hurt, you know, President Bush's reelection chances, let's say against John Kerry, are we supposed to ignore that? I mean, there's some pretty amazing stuff in this New York Times article where they have these senior Democrat officials or senior DNC officials saying we couldn't believe the press was covering these stories. They're not. They, they really think they're not going to cover this. I mean, that's I, I think, if anything, it right. showed how cozy they think their relationship actually is with the press, that they would overlook what made for pretty interesting reading. But what wasn't I, I, you know, I, I agree with you. I'm of the so what mindset, not about, oh, Russia hacking. Yeah, Russia hacking is bad. But in terms of the actual election and the course of the election, uh, I think the FBI probe of Hillary Clinton, I think Hillary Clinton for we could talk about this for hours was a much bigger issue than an email from Debbie Wasserman Schultz to somebody or Donna Brazil giving questions to Hillary ahead of a town hall. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And even the Times managed to squeeze out seven or eight words out of 8,000 to make a fleeting reference to the fact that maybe, just maybe, uh, it was the fact that the Democrats nominated a fatally flawed, awful candidate uh, that actually explains their defeat because at least there's a causative nexus between that and the result and they can't show that with respect to the russian hacking and i i don't mean to beat a dead horse but uh, you know what what got hacked here was information that the democrats have never said was false information i mean you know for, for three months or however long this went on with podesta's emails and with the dnc's emails uh they never 
responded to them. They never made the claim because I don't think they they could have credibly that these were not authentic emails. Uh, so what they're essentially complaining about is that there was too much true information about them that was out there and it was harmful. But I think at the end, uh, you know, the reason they lost is not because of what was in Podesta's emails or the DNC emails. And by the way, the DNC emails indicate that the Democrats actually rigged the election in the primary for Hillary. So, you know, it, it kind of exposes them as being guilty somewhat, to some extent of what it is that they're complaining about. So that's a whole nother uh, irony that that uh, uh, sort of hangs over this whole situation. But I, I, I also just, get annoyed by the, the sanctimony to... around the issue, Andy, of this is all about the integrity of our elections and preventing this from happening in the future. I am not aware of any way to prevent somebody from clicking on or to prevent somebody uh, who gets a phishing email, who responds with their password from having their email account access. I, I don't know what people think. That is what happened here. This is not uh, some, you know, this isn't an episode of that movie or, you know, an instance from that movie Swordfish, or which was a terrible movie, uh, or The Matrix, where this was really complicated stuff. Yeah, well, look, I just hope that Democrats will finally now join with me in in concluding that we really need to get out of the U.N. because, you know, there's an awful lot of Russian influence there. And I think we should just, you know, anything that has Russian influence in it, we should just sort of pull out of and get out of, don't you think? Yeah, well, I don't understand why the media is uh, the media now is is raising the alarm about. Well, I do understand, but I should say we should point out that the media is raising all these alarms about Russia we got uh, on a hot mic, Obama speaking to Medvedev, saying, you know, after my election, I'll have more flexibility to sort of hang with you guys and, and work with you. So, well, which is it? Is Russia this irredeemable yeah. enemy run by this thug that we shouldn't talk to about anything? Or should we have more flexibility to find areas where we can work with them? We can. I mean, they can't have it both ways. Yeah, well, they're, they're going to try. But I, I remember a short time ago when there were 50,000 Russian troops. Uh, marshaled on the uh, border of Ukraine when there was an article in a, a big piece in the, I think it was, I can't remember if it was the Times or the Washington Post, where administration officials were saying, well, you know, look, uh, they, they've marshaled a lot of troops, but it all comes down to intent. And who really knows what Putin's intent is here? So we've gone from a point where they said they couldn't tell us what Putin was thinking. This was like a nanosecond after they had taken uh, the Crimea, and when they were still occupying, and as they are, uh, parts of Georgia, they got 50,000 troops on the Ukrainian border, and they say, you know, we can't read Putin's mind here. We don't really know what, what his intent is. And now suddenly the intelligence community has ESP, and they know precisely what he was thinking. And it was to put his thumb on the scale as if he could uh, to swing the election. For so, Andy, you, you don't buy that they because I know the FBI also already has come out and said, look, we're not we're not sure about the intent here. And as I said, strategically, that seems like a, a very uh, foolish thing to do. Why antagonize the next president of the United States for, for you know, w- with no real purpose other than just to antagonize? Right. It, it's it yeah, seems maybe. to me to be too. you know, Putin is a lot of things. I actually don't think he's dumb. I think he's shown a fair amount of savvy as a as a geopolitical actor but um you know i have to ask you do, do you take any do you have any uh faith in this line that's out there that we can't even be 100 percent sure that it's russia or are you 100 are you are you 99 percent sure it's russia and i wanted to ask you. I, i'm 100 i'm 110 percent sure it's russia 
Uh, and I would, I would want our money back if the intelligence community got up and said, you know, after looking at this hard, I don't think we don't think that the Russians meddle in our elections. I assume the Russians do everything they can to meddle in our election and to meddle in a lot of stuff. And I would point out that the Democrats welcome this kind of meddling. For example, in 1980, when uh, when Jimmy Carter asked uh, Brezhnev to do it on his behalf in order to stop Reagan the first time. And when Teddy Kennedy in 1984 asked Andropov to do it to stop Reagan the second time. So this sort of stuff goes on all the time. What I question is whether they can give us a, a, a rational interpretation of what the Russians were trying to accomplish. If in fact the Russians did have a, you know, a strategic plan for what they were trying to do here. But I take it as a given that the Russians and other sophisticated actors uh, who have capable, uh, you know, cyber espionage components try to meddle where they can meddle. And, you know, it's our responsibility to try to, to stop that. But it's a large, and I, I think it's an unbridgeable leap uh, to go from that premise to say that, you know, what Russia did here tilted the election to Trump, because I think what tilted the election to Trump is that the American people didn't want Hillary to be president. Andy McCarthy is a contributing editor at National Review. You can read his latest at National Review Online. Andy, great to have you, sir. Appreciate you making the time. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Buck. Uh, Team, the phone lines are open, 888-900-3393. Sponsor this half hour is silencershop.com. Uh, if you haven't thought about it before, give it some thought now. Getting a silencer is a fantastic idea. If you can, it's an accessory for your firearm that will make the whole shooting experience more enjoyable. Customers can trust that silencershop.com handles the process of getting a silencer quickly and correctly because they submit more forms than anybody in the country by a huge margin. When shooting with a silencer, shooting becomes more social. It's easier to communicate and enjoy the environment around you. And by the way, if you buy from silencershop.com, it's just like buying local since your local dealer is setting the price and making the profit. Now you can get the best price and know you're supporting your local business. So please check it out. Go to silencershop.com. They have a helpful staff. They've got a lot of information on the site. And of course, all the best products and prices available on the market. Silencershop.com. Silencershop.com. Help make the world a quieter place. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton. On the Blaze Radio Network. Let's play this one from CNN last night. Clip four, go. Trotsky and Stalin, compared to those two, (laughs) Vladimir Putin's a nice guy like uh, (laughs) Don Lemon or Derek Jeter. Uh, You know... The, the sad part is the that first time I've ever been compared person, to either of those two. But go on. Well, you, you deserve it. I mean, look, uh, it's sad that we're having someone who's going to run the State Department, whose entire goal in life has been to pump oil and make money, who doesn't care for people who are suffering, who isn't going to support independent organizations, who's not going to come out and say women's rights are human rights. None of that stuff. 
why is it okay to make all of these tremendous assumptions about uh, Rex Tillerson, what he would do as Secretary of State? It's interesting, isn't it, that there there is a sort of a, a knee-jerk reaction on the left that suggests that if you haven't been a, a government employee for much or most of your career, uh, you can't do a government job. I have to tell you, running ExxonMobil is vastly more complicated and has much more accountability than 99% of jobs that he would have or that, that you could have in the in the federal government. That's just the truth. Um, and yet there's all this disparaging stuff said about and, and pump oil. That's who applauds this sort of statement. Pumping oil is a bad thing. What goes into your car? Half of petroleum, as you know, is used for products, not even necessarily uh, used as fuel for vehicles. So uh, you you don't want a carbon-based economy? Then you don't want an advanced economy. This notion that ExxonMobil is some sort of an evil corporation, this is just like a, a, a childish position taken by many on the left. And I'm amazed that they can go on TV and get applauded for this kind of stuff. Oh, Rex, head of Exxon. He's not going to speak about what – who knows? He doesn't know what he's going to speak about when it comes to women's rights. The guy's been the CEO of the biggest company in the world. He's probably got something to offer. I know the Russia ties, people say it's really troubling. Well, we'll see. That's why they have congressional hearings. Let's hear what these Russia ties are. If you're in the oil business on a global scale, yeah, you're probably going to be crossing, uh, crossing the road with Russia at some point. So anyway, more on that coming up in a little bit. 888-900-3393. We'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Team, we're joined now by Matt Walsh. He is an author at The Blaze and at themattwalshblog.com. On Twitter, he's at Matt Walsh Blog. Matt, good to have you. Thanks for joining. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, first, can you tell me a bit about being traumatized traumatized by a sexist, racist, transphobic mall Santa? That sounds scary. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I wish that you wouldn't drudge up these uh, these memories, Buck. It's, it's uh, pretty difficult. Well, you know, I, I recorded a video last uh last week about a mall santa that i encountered at the mall and um yeah i was just listing all the ways that it's offensive and there's the there's the obvious ones like you know not everybody's christian in the mall there are jews and muslims who aren't included in this uh but it's also offensive that he's uh straight you know why couldn't he be gay that it's offensive that there's so many reasons why it's offensive uh milk and cookies you know offensive to lactose intolerant people so anyway i recorded that video and it got like four million (laughs) views and mo- most of the people that uh, that watched the video thought took it completely seriously, and were you know thought that I was being completely sincere, and and saw, and I've got a lot of very supportive emails from um, liberals telling me you know basically in, in solidarity, trying to encourage me, and I thought that was pretty um, that was nice. So so wait, there there are people you're telling me that there are people who I mean, we, we, do we have before before we play the audio? I know. Hold on a second, John. Before we play the audio, uh, there are people that that saw you talking about this and they thought you were serious that they were actually really pleased that somebody was calling out the transphobia of santa claus 
the vast majority of people, if you read the comments, the vast majority of people have taken it seriously on one side or the other. Like they're, they're conservatives and they're calling me a liberal pansy or, or, you know, words more vulgar than that, or they're liberals take it. But the vast majority, like 90 percent taking it seriously. So that's I guess that, you know, that's where we are with liberalism now. That's really hard to make a parody of it because it's so ridiculous that nobody can tell if you're doing a parody or if you're being serious. I will say that I've seen, unfortunately, a lot, with a lot of conservatives, sarcasm does not translate well on social media for some reason. Sarcasm and parody sometimes, you know, all you have to do is put out a tweet that's like, yeah, Hillary was a great presidential candidate, and you'll get people that are yelling at you, and it's, it's difficult. Uh, that is something that, that is real. Let's play a little of Matt's audio. Four million views and counting. Go. <sighs> um, something uh, something terrible happened uh to me just now and um very traumatic i i i don't even know how to talk about this but i was just it was just in the mall i, I went to the mall to buy some genderless non-heteronormative non-holiday specific gifts for my non-binary three-year-old sky and uh you know i was just walking along looking looking for like a gender neutral beige polka dotted cardigan for toddlers when i happened to stumble upon I, I stumbled upon, trigger warning here, I, I stumbled upon a Santa, a mall Santa, in a public place in the year 2016, because apparently this mall has never heard of the Declaration of Independence and the First Amendment of it, which says that you can't have religious holiday displays in places where there's other people that are not of that religion. It says it right in there. Now, I can't believe I have to explain to you bigots in the year 2016 why a mall Santa is extremely offensive. But let's start with the most obvious one. Not everybody is Christian. Hello. There were Jewish Americans walking in that mall, weeping because of this. Why couldn't there be someone dressed as uh, Moses or something for them? There were Muslim refugees from Syria, probably, walking in that mall. Why couldn't there be someone dressed as Muhammad for them? They would love that. I myself am an agnostic, Wiccan, Buddhist, vegan, wizard. And, of course, I was completely unrepresented by the mall Santa. But yeah, it's worse Matt, than that you, because you, Santa- you, were, you were completely unrepresented by the, by the mall Santa. I love that the, the verbiage you're using, by the way, and, and obviously it's, it's great parody, is, is the actual wording that the left uses for a lot of stuff. The sort of non-binary. Yeah, yeah. That's real. You're actually just taking what they say. You're not making up these words. No, no, not at all. And, there, and there's, a, there, as we know, there's a whole community of people who really are very uh, intent on raising their kids in a you know non-binary household. And so th- this is something people do. They go out and they look for genderless toys and things like that. So it's like I said, it, once you've once you've got one side of the spectrum that has honestly descended into actual insanity, it it does make it different. And I mean, one it, on one hand, it's easy to make fun of, but on the other hand, it's it's difficult to parody. Because they are so insane, but I but I also think you know you mentioned that satire, parody, and that kind of thing doesn't play well with conservatives, or they don't pick up on it as much. And I think that is true, but um, that's an un- well on know, social on social media. I'm just saying on Twitter and Facebook on yeah. social media, but it's also but I mean like there's no it, it's it's a it's a tactic that we've pretty much ceded to the left. It's they're the only ones that do it, and it's effective. I mean, people, it's an effective way of de- deconstructing an argument, even if it's a little bit ridiculous. Uh, and, uh, so maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe there should be more of these kind of things. Anyway, it's, it's fun to do anyway. So 
I'm actually there. There is a part of me that's a little surprised, given how crazy the left has gotten in recent years, or how far they're willing to go on some things, that there isn't more. And this is going to sound crazy, but it's I, I could see this happening. There isn't more outrage about Santa being overwhelmingly white and male. You know that that, that we don't hear more about the need for Santa diversity. Look, they'll get around to it. I, I mean, I I did. I think the reason why I even made that the thing that inspired me was that the uh, the story about I think at the Mall of America they had their first Black Santa, and it was treated as this uh, victory or whatever. Um, so I think they'll get around to it. But it's just when you've set out to be offended by literally everything in the world, it's you can't get you know it's, you gotta you have to take it one at a time. So it's they'll they'll get there. I'm sure. Why is it so? fun or better word why is it so gratifying for the progressives and by the way i i I more or less go get coffee at what would be considered a progressive coffee shop every morning as i sort of get ready for for the day and i'm surrounded by people that i I hear the way they're speaking about things there's a lot of people from the sort of tech and and fashion community near where i live and you know of course after the election people were all talking i could overhear things why is it fun to always be um, in a perpetual state of, of outrage? I mean, d- don't your hands get blistered after clutching your pearls so many times? I would think so, but I also think it's just, uh, well, I guess they call it virtue signaling these days, which I actually think that term is a little bit overused at times. But uh, it's a way of feeling morally superior, where you have all these rubes that are that are doing something or saying something and they think it's harmless. And so you get to go in and be the intelligent one who explains, oh, no, this is actually problematic because I learned about this in college and gender studies. Let me tell you about it. And so it's just a way of, I think, showing off your intelligence and your supposed um, more refined moral sensibilities. And yet this stuff to any normal person would have sounded bizarre even five, maybe ten, but I would say five years ago, a lot of the positions that, that are taken now I come across people who otherwise seem totally normal who think that, yeah, clothing for clothing for toddlers should be non-gender specific. That that should be the, you know, the, the, you mentioned like beige polka dot, you know, non-binary, non-cisgender uh, clothing for toddlers. There are people who, who, who have been taught to believe that as though that's normal. Yeah, and it has happened really quick, very, very rapidly. It's, it's kind of surprising, but then it's not so surprising when you, when you realize that uh, many people in our culture are kind of, unmoored they're, they're not grounded in any kind of uh, moral code or or set of principles or anything and so we're all kind of floating around um untethered and so it doesn't take much when someone presents a worldview to you it doesn't take much for you to kind of adopt it and once you've adopted it then you'll just go along with with the rest of it so people have adopted progressivism as this as the superior uh way of looking at the world and so they'll just follow it. You know, it's, when the next thing comes up that they're supposed to think, they'll just follow right along. I think that's what people do. Um, we've been talking about it a bit on the show, Matt, but I, I wanted to get your take on it. And it's obviously uh, up on up on the Blaze.com right now with your most recent piece. Uh, no, Russia didn't elect Donald Trump. The voters did. Uh, what, what do you say in the face of all, all this? It, it really is a sort of Russia hysteria. It's like the Russians are invading. It's very strange because it's... You know, I, I was uh, I was just born in the, in the mid '80s. So I don't remember a lot of this, but I am aware that you know li- liberals in this country spent back when the Soviet Union actually was an evil empire trying to take over the world and pointing nuclear missiles at the United States and that sort of thing. You had liberals in this country that were the ones saying, "No, no, they're misunderstood." You know, taking their side, and now all of a sudden, when that's over, they decide that Russia is the 
is the evil empire. So that is, it's an interesting thing. Um, but I also think that, look, let's be honest, there's hypocrisy on both sides of this. Because it was also not, but it seems like it was only just yesterday that conservatives were the anti-Russia hawks and the ones who practically wanted to go to war with Russia, uh, you know, over them trying to take over the smaller states surrounding them. And now, and now conservatives are the ones that are on Russia's side. So I, I know a lot of conservatives are saying that this is kind of a one-sided hypocrisy that's going on, but I don't really think, I, I think it's both sides. Have no, I think the answer is nobody really knows what they think about Russia. And so we're just kind of, we've all switched sides and uh, it's like the hokey pokey or the, or, or a, you know, some dance thing. And, and it's just, it's, everyone's confused. Yeah, we in the agency, people would, and I'm sure it's borrowed from other places, people would always say, you know, where you sit is where you stand, like whichever office you were in, that was the most important issue facing the United States government at the time. And whatever issue you were on specifically in that office, you know, that was the most important, uh, uh, you know, portfolio that could possibly ever be addressed by U.S. government power. And I I think what we're seeing here is there are a lot of people who I, I think... There's been so much uh, hypocrisy going on that it almost feels like you got to fight fire with fire. And so, yeah, Russia, not, yeah, not so bad <laughs> you know, because the Democrats are worse. Not a principled position, but I, I do think that people just feel like this is a food fight. Everybody's in the middle of it. I've already got, you know, cheddar soup on my face or whatever. So I might as well just throw some stuff at the other guy. Yeah, I think that's what everyone's doing, and I, I don't think I don't think we've uh, we haven't become more enlightened people because of it. But it is, it, I think, the actual right position on the Russia thing is pretty simple. It's not that hard to. There's a little bit of a nuance to it, but uh, the answer is that if Russia did, in fact, and this is all big if, but if they did actually hack the emails and if they did leak them with the intention of getting Donald Trump elected, those are all big ifs. And maybe we'll never know the answer to that question. But if that were true then that is significant and it should be investigated. And that's something that we should all take exception to as Americans, because this is a foreign government trying to involve itself in our election. And so, yeah, that's a significant thing. On the other hand, uh, Donald Trump probably would have been elected anyway. I don't think the emails are the ones that all the, the thing that ultimately did it. Hillary Clinton was a historically weak candidate and so on and so forth. And, and that's the reason why they lost is because of Hillary Clinton. Yeah, so, it, well, yeah it is. I, I, I totally agree with you, by the way. And, and, people I was at CNN a couple of days ago and they look at me like that position is crazy that you can say, yeah, investigate. Yeah, this isn't good, but let's not all pretend that this changed the election because, you know, ultimately they want to push people into one camp or the other. Either you're a, a sort of a, a Russia hack denier or you're um, somebody that's willing to say that the election was, was turned by this little Russian information operation. Yeah. I don't think the average voter in uh you know some blue collar county in michigan or pennsylvania or north carolina i don't think they went out and voted based on russian propaganda because russia told them to or even because of the emails i don't think that was what motivated people i think they were motivated because they they liked donald trump's ideas and um they also just and on the other side of it people just were not inspired on the liberals were not inspired by hillary clinton they've never been inspired by her this is a problem going back 30 years and so that's that's why things turn out the way they did. I think it would have been. And the other problem is that the liberals run into here is that Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote by three million, uh, right, by whatever, two, two or three million votes. So it, the, the problem isn't that just she just she lost. It's the states that she lost. That was the problem. So are we supposed to believe that the Russian propaganda, if that's what it was, uh, only works particularly in places like Michigan and Pennsylvania and the states she needed to win? Yeah, I don't think so. So it just it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, and also I think they they all assumed even when the emails were coming out 
that Hillary was going to win anyway. <laughs> so that's they, n- none of them thought it was effective until after Trump won. And then all of a sudden, this was the most genius thing. The New York Times, the piece today, the perfect weapon. That's what they're calling it, which I don't know if you know this, Matt, was actually a pretty marginal to suboptimal martial arts movie from the early 90s with Jeff Speakman, who did not have much of a career. I have to be honest, the martial arts movies, I, I am not well-versed in those, and I feel uh, <laughs> okay. I feel I feel insufficient as a man because of that. Well, no, I, I do agree with you on best TV shows I saw on Twitter uh, with The Wire and Breaking Bad, so good calls on those. Matt Walsh is the uh, author, or is an author at TheBlaze.com and the author of the Matt Walsh blog. Go to TheMattWalshBlog.com and also download his podcast on The Blaze Radio. Matt, appreciate you making the time. Great talking to you. Thanks a lot, Buck. Team, we'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show only. On the Blaze Radio Network. Let's take a call from Nick in Arizona. What's up, Nick? Hey, Mike. How you doing? Shield Ty from a fellow Greenbeard Millennial and member of the IC. Oh, nice. So a little about my background before I ask my question. I'm a 16-year Army veteran. I started out as a door kicker, and then I transitioned into the IC in the mid-2000s. And I did... Two deployments to Iraq and two to Afghanistan, one as a contractor. So <clears throat> I have a movie quote for you if you want before I ask my question. Uh, Nick, you know what we're going to do, actually? Um, give me the movie quote, but we're going to hold your question to the top of the next hour, and then I'll address it because uh, we're literally about to run into a hard break. What's the movie quote first? All that hate is going to burn you up, kid. Mm. I got nothing. What is it? Oh, come on. Red Dawn. Oh, I've actually never seen Red Dawn. I'll be honest with you. Never seen it. I know. It's, it's, it is a gap in my movie, in my, especially my action movie, rah-rah America action movie knowledge. Uh, Nick, we'll, we'll keep you in. Uh, we got a guest, but we'll keep you in. If you can stay with us, we'll get your question afterwards. And uh, thank you for your service. Very impressive resume. We're going to be back in a little bit. Um, 888-900-3393. Guys, hold Nick over and see if he can wait. And uh, we're going to get into some national security in hour three. So stay with me. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is The Buck Sexton Show. Welcome back, team. It's hour three. We're going to get into a national security deep dive. Time for a Buck Brief. You are entering the Blaze Threat Ops Center. This is a secure space. All outside comms are down. Prepare to receive the Buck Brief. Joined now by Jay Solomon. He's a reporter at the Wall Street Journal and author of the new book, The Iran Wars, Spy Games, Bank Battles, and the Secret Deals that Reshape the Middle East. 
Jay, great to have you. Great, thanks. Good to be here. Uh, first, let's talk about this bombing of a uh, Coptic Christian church in Egypt. Killed 25 people on Sunday. Uh, the Islamic State, I believe, has claimed responsibility. That's the latest on this, right? What, what, what can you tell us? Yeah, I mean, it just looks like Egypt is, is one of a long line of countries now that have, have seen this kind of this Islamic State threat uh, metastasized. We've seen it, obviously, in Syria, Iraq, Libya, and now... Uh, in Egypt in a, in a much more pronounced um, way than it, than it has been in the past. Normally, this, most of this violence had been, the Islamic State presence had been up in, the, up in the Sinai near the Israeli border, but these bombings of, of Christian churches is just more, more of a sign of, of how, this, how this cancer is really spreading in that region. And the, the president there, the former General uh, Sisi, is, has really been launching a pretty aggressive uh, campaign against these groups, but they're they're still there and they're still very much active. Yeah, Egypt has been out of the headlines for all after being obviously one of the, the biggest news stories of the Arab Spring and then afterwards with the various changes in, in government. Um, but they still have an active branch of the Islamic State in the Sinai Peninsula. They have uh, terrorist attacks that, that are happening there, like this one against the Coptic Church. Uh, it does raise some interesting uh, policy questions about, well, how will this be handled by a Trump administration? I see you've written a piece that says that Egypt is hoping for warmer U.S.-Russia ties because of the implications that will have for counterterrorism, for the counterterrorism fight. Yeah, Egypt, I mean, to, to be honest, to even back to the Bush administration, Egypt has had a pretty bumpy relationship with Washington over the past 10 years. George W. Bush really was pushing hard for democracy agenda and um, kind of butted heads with then strongman Hosni Mubarak. Uh, ironically, President Obama, when he took power, kind of toned down that that agenda that Obama, that Bush was, was presenting itself. But then you had the uprising there in uh, 2011 and first uh, an Islamist government took over the Muslim Brotherhood, and then there was essentially a counter movement led by the, the the current president Sisi. And that relations between Washington and, and Cairo have been have been kind of rocky since then. We suspended the United States suspended some military assistance to um, General Sisi's government, and it really shows kind of the tensions in the region because the Egyptian government describes this, you know, really as a counterterrorism threat that their country is under siege. You know, how can you not be serious about um, helping us support this, this, this threat? And they've kind of started like a lot of countries as the U.S. has pulled back have, have looked to Russia as, as a country that can be more sympathetic and less willing to talk about human rights or issues like that. And we've seen a lot more Russian troop um, military exercises with, with the Egyptian government. And it's, you know, President-elect Obama has given a pretty mixed message. On the one hand, he says he doesn't want to get involved in nation building or playing much of a, a role in the Middle East. And he's been very critical of the Iraq war. But at the same time, he's, he's kind of just tried to define himself as you know, going to fight ISIS. He's willing to ally with the Russians more closely to do it. So I think that's why you see this hopeful kind of message coming out of, of Egypt. And, and that was displayed by, through this interview I did with their foreign minister. Now, you, there's also a piece here where you're uh, one of the co-authors. Senate, uh, this is on the Wall Street Journal, wallstreetjournal.com for everybody listening. Senate joins House in approving extension of Iran sanctions. What's the latest here? Yeah, I mean, there's there's something called the Iran Sanctions Act, which has essentially been in place since 
more than 10 years, and it, it basically has a, a list of measures the U.S. government can take if they so choose. It doesn't, want to ma- it doesn't mandate it, but it, it puts it out there. And it was the U.S., but the Senate and the House agreed to extend this legislation for another 10 years, which immediately caused the Iranians to go ballistic and say that the U.S. was now in violation of the nuclear agreement that went into effect earlier this year. They promptly announced that they were going to start building uh, nuclear-powered submarines and and other type of naval uh, warships, and that it was going to be fueled by their own um, nuclear power. It was kind of a vague, but this whole episode shows how um, unsolidified the nuclear agreement is after only after a year that it's been in place, and, and President Trump has been pretty critical of it. So it, it, it's another raising another question mark of what's going to happen in that region. What do you expect from a Trump administration going into the nuclear deal? I mean, is it is it going to be too hard for them to just scrap the whole thing? What's going to happen? Yeah, I mean, I think I I don't get the sense that President elect Trump is going to want to come in on day one and just tear the deal up. It's there's a lot of diplomatic issues at stake. There's also, even on Iran, there's been a bit of a mixed messaging coming out of the people he's been appointing. Trump's, on the one hand, said he's against the deal, and others has said, you know, why why are we not doing business with Iran when all these other countries are doing it now? And I know the, the, the man he selected to be the Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, is not kind of a big supporter of sanctions, but at the same time, a lot of these guys now, and the, his, his, the new Pentagon chief, the, the CIA chief, are extremely hawkish on Iran. I think the more likely scenario is you're going to see the Trump administration really push back on Iranian actions in the region and in the Gulf and other countries and, and enforce that nuclear agreement much more vigorously than Obama has. And I think that could breed a crisis because even this this passage of these new sanctions, it's, it's largely ceremonial and it brought back this type of response. If the U.S. really does start imposing new sanctions on Iran, which some, some in the Trump camp have been talking about, I, I think there, there's a real risk that the the um, Iranians will escalate and threat, threat to pull out of the deal. As for Rex Tillerson as as uh, Secretary of State, people keep talking about his Russia ties and the problems posed by his Russia ties. Can you give us some sense of what is what are those Russia ties and, and what are some of the deals that he's been involved in that have given everyone, uh, not everyone, but have given people this mo- sort of moment of pause as uh, as he's been announced as the Secretary of State picked by Trump? I mean, he just did a, as head of Exxon. He did a lot of of business deals in in Russia. He got a big award from Vladimir Putin a few years ago. There's oil fields kind of in way eastern Russia, over almost above North Korea, called the Sakhalin Fields that Exxon has has partnered with Russia. Um, there's a company called Rosneft, which the U.S. Has sanctioned since the. Um, annexation of Crimea, sanctioned its CEO, and Tillerson did a lot of business with them. So there's there's just a very kind of deep relationship between um, Mr. Tillerson and Rush, not just Putin, but also companies that the U.S. have sanctioned in recent years because of the Ukrainian issue. And it, you know, it raises questions as how is he going to kind of disentangle himself? Is he going to be willing to push sanctions against Russia when it would hurt businesses that ExxonMobil is in, even if he kind of takes a step back? So, I mean, he does have he and Exxon had a lot, a lot of business dealings, not just in Russia, but with 
entities that have been sanctioned by the United States, and it does raise questions like how is he going to navigate that if he's suddenly in charge of of a policy with Russia at a time when Russia really is, as we're seeing in Syria right now, kind of defying the, the Western world and and pursuing its own interests and really pursuing it, it's a, a greater role in the, in the Middle East and, and Eastern Europe. Any uh, do, do you give any credibility to the, well, he'll put up Tillerson, and if there's too much heat, he's got somebody in the wings that he really wants, or is that too conspiratorial for your, for your I thinking? I think that's too conspiratorial. We've been doing this runaround now for three weeks. I can't imagine after that he hasn't finally said, all right, this is, this is the guy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's a bit too much of a kabuki dance. I think yeah, put him out and there Mitt Romney went on Facebook, and, you know, once it's on Facebook, it's, it's official now. That's kind, of the way, that's kind of the way that works in this day and age. Um, yeah. Just could you get, tell, tell us a little bit about, about your book, The Iran Wars, Spy Games, Bank Battles, and the Secret Deals that Reshaped the Middle East. I mean, what are some of the, the, either the main issues, main revelations that, that you deal with in the book, and, and what will people get out of reading it? You know, it's really like it's a kind of a narrative of the U.S. Iranian conflict since since September 11th. Obviously, U.S. relations with Iran have been bumpy since the revolution there in 1979 and the overthrow of the Shah, who was the closest ally of the U.S. at the time. I think the main takeaways are just how much financial pain the United States inflicted on Iran going from basically 2006 through the nuclear negotiation last year and really raising the issue of did we sort of let them off the hook, you know? Well, why did we decide to pull back um, pressuring in Iran when the agreement that was eventually reached does basically give Iran an industrial-scale nuclear program eventually in, in 10 years? And it also it raises questions about just how obsessed Obama was with, with the Iran track and as you may recall, there was this huge uprising in 2009 uh, called the Green Movement when millions of Iranians took to the streets. And Obama basically did not lend almost any support to the Iranian uprising when he did to the Egyptian one. And I think the book outlines that he had already started to make these overtures to the supreme leader of Iran, the Ayatollahs, that we can reach some of agreement. And that impacted his thinking on, on whether to support the, the Green Movement and I think also Syria as kind of the the big tragedy of the last decade. You know, he was Iran, he was so engaged in this negotiation with Iran. At the same time, he was talking about enforcing red lines against the Syrian regime, basically punishing them for using chemical weapons. And in the end, he he didn't follow through with any of that. And I, the book really shows that the negotiations, what the communications he was having with the Iranians were basically saying, you know, you can't target the Assad regime, the Syrian regime, as our closest ally. I think those three, those three issues, whether we let them off the hook, did we sacrifice the, the democracy movement in Iran, and did we, are we basically complicit in what happens in Syria? I think those are probably the three biggest takeaways from the book. One of the questions that I think often comes up when people talk about Iran, and this is going to be essential going forward so that the Trump administration knows what it's doing. Well, that's an open question in itself, but knows what it's doing in, in dealing with Iran. Will, will come about with what is the real nature of the Iranian regime? I mean, there seems to be quite a spectrum from, you know, a lot of sort of public noise about America and Israel as, you know, great Satan, little Satan, and that's for domestic political consumption. Uh, but really, they're pretty rational actors in their own way to, oh, no, they're they're like end of world 
willing to have a nuclear exchange with Israel. The Guardian Council's got a bunch of nut jobs on it. I mean, w- w- from your research and your reading about the Iranian regime, especially post nine eleven, where where do you put them on the spectrum? I mean, it's a, it's a totally split government. I mean, that, that's the real problem. You've got the supreme leader, who's basically the pope and the commander in chief, all wrapped in one, really in charge of that country, and he has this essentially a Praetorian guard called the Revolutionary Guards that are directly under his under his writ and, and basically control not just the military and the security forces, but the most of the big companies in that country. And then you have the the president and the foreign minister who are pretty, ra- you know, they come across as pretty rational actors. The foreign minister spent decades in the United States. So it's a very split, split nature. And in the negotiations, the U.S. was very much dealing with this the more rational actor, but at the end of the day, it's the supreme leader that really calls the shots. And despite the agreement and the hope that it would somehow build better relations, it really hasn't happened yet. I mean, the Iranians are very aggressive now in in what we're seeing in Syria with basically trying to knock out the U.S.-backed rebel groups in, in the northern parts of Syria. They're very active in arming a group in Yemen that's fighting the U.S.-Saudi uh, alliance in, in, in that country. They're still funding Hezbollah, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, these groups in, that are fighting Israel. So, you know, despite the rational talk, there are actual policies in the in the in that region have not changed essentially at all. Yeah, I was going to ask you, can you point to one place post-Iran deal where the Iranians, other for, for putting aside the specifics of the nuclear program for a second, where the Iranians have even had a, a lighter touch uh, in the Middle East and, and in their actions vis-a-vis all these different uh, militant groups? Not one. They've probably gotten more aggressive. They certainly have in Syria. They certainly have in Yemen. Uh, so I think yeah, they've they've basically just continued how they were, and internally they haven't loosened up at all either. I mean, the, the number of dual national, whether they're Americans or Euro- Europeans, that have been arrested in there over the past year has actually grown. Uh, this, the uh, internal dissent has been continues to be quashed. So, I think the concern is you you got an agreement where the Iranians did kind of restrain their program. If it works for about a decade, if it, if, if it doesn't, it's less. But the sanctions have been repealed. We've given billions in dollars of cash, and you, and you risk kind of entrenching that hardline element of the government that has shown no sense or desire to, to moderate itself. Jay Solomon's a reporter at The Wall Street Journal. You can read his latest at uh, WSJ.com. And he's also the author of The Iran Wars, Spy Games, Bank Battles, and The Secret Deals That Reshaped the Middle East. Jay Solomon, great to have you. Come back soon. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Team, we'll be right back. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Sexton Show. Nick in Arizona, you're a patient man. Thank you for holding. Let's get the rest of your question. What's up? Oh, yeah, so my question I wanted to get your take on is uh, the, the way we kind of scrupulously observe uh, borders, specifically the AFPAC border, Afghan-Pakistan border, um, which is sort of an imaginary line, the Duran line from 1893, as you know. Um, and we allow it to be a curtain that... Uh, 
most of our HVIs tend to hide on the other side of, um, and why we allow uh, Pakistan to have that kind of uh, freedom when they're ostensibly our ally to uh, harbor the majority of our our highest threats in that region. Uh, yeah, I mean, Pakistan itself, first of all, your point about the, the Durand line, I mean, the separation between Afghanistan and Pakistan on a map that doesn't really exist, the Pashtun tribes go right across it, uh, move across it all the time. I've actually seen uh, seen the you know the lines of trucks crossing at the various border uh, various border checkpoints, uh, and there's a lot of activity back and forth, both sort of on unofficial transit routes and unofficially too. One of the best ways that people get across is using a bunch of donkeys and just going up through the through the, the mountains. Uh, or not the best ways, one of the oldest ways, I should say. Uh, sure. That's a huge issue because as much as we could get victory in Afghanistan, uh, you could you could eliminate all the Taliban from Afghanistan tomorrow. And just based on what's across the border in Pakistan, you, you would have a problem, right? They, they would come back. They would uh, equip and train and, and filter across the border. And that's why we, we've – it's really not possible to have a, a truly stable Afghanistan. The best you can hope for is an Afghan, Afghan government that can sort of continue to win the fight mostly on its own, although the U.S. presence there isn't going away, I think, anytime soon. Uh, as to Pakistan, it's – I, I hate giving answers to start with things like, well, it's really complicated, but there, you know, there are elements of the Pakistani government and intelligence services that, uh, let's say, uh, of the military, forget, leave, leave the ISI out for a second, that are willing to work against uh, extremist elements. There are others that work right, with, right alongside and in favor of the extremist elements and will hide them. And look, all you have to do is think about bin Laden living in a house that's specifically set up to hide him a couple of miles from the Pakistani version of West Point. And you start to really wonder what the heck's what's what the heck's going on over there. Uh, we don't have any good answers, but the other side of it is we don't want the craziest guys with you know the hardest the hard line interpretation, the longest beards to be the ones with their fingers on the nuclear trigger, right? So, Nick, I don't have an answer other than yeah, it is it is a mess, and it hasn't gotten less messy really. It's still very bad yeah, over there. As you My know. thought is that uh, I don't understand why we don't exert more uh, pressure on them based on the shocking amount of USA they receive. Uh, the most nauseating uh, briefing I ever got from a uh, government official was a USAID briefing that talked about the amount of money they put in the Fatah uh, that is branded as coming from the Pakistani government and not even from the U.S., yeah, I mean, we, we've got levers. Uh, we don't use them particularly effectively, and I'm not sure they're even enough to get the Pakistanis to change their their uh, actions on this stuff. But, Nick, thank you for your service. Thank you for your call and your patience, my friend. Shields high. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. This is the Buck Sexton Show. We've got Tom Rogan on the line now. He is a writer for National Review and also at Opportunity Lives, and he's just a general awesome guy. Tom Rogan, good to have you back, my friend. Thanks a lot, Buck. Good to be with you. 
Uh, so we've got to talk about a pretty sad topic today, a tragic topic. Uh, we haven't really addressed it before on the show, Tom, so I want you to give us a sort of full up-to-date overview of what's happening because we lost the second or the last uh, two hours of the show yesterday to tech issues. We're gonna, I was going to do a deep dive on Aleppo. Uh, it is a horrible situation over there right now. What is happening in the city of Aleppo as we speak? Yeah, well, the issue is essentially, I think, twofold. Number one, the uh, moderate Sunni rebellion. And there are there are elements of extremists there, but predominantly uh, there were moderate-aligned groups have essentially been localized into an ever-smaller uh, circle, a pocket that is being squeezed on all sides by a mixture of uh, Syrian, Russian, Iranian, and Lebanese uh, forces, with Lebanese Hezbollah. Uh, and then at the secondary point, um, Civilians are being, in some cases, uh, just shot down, uh, in other cases, bombed, in other cases, disappeared, which is to say put into uh, uh, secret prisons from which few ever return uh, as they attempt to to leave the city. And and all this is being done, I think, very deliberately uh, on the part of uh, the Assad axis, the Putin axis, uh, to to pummel the rebellion, to try and destroy its moral center of gravity and to also... uh, embarrass the United States to, to throw blood in the face of the United States and then through that to try and destroy American credibility with the Sunni allies who care a lot about this because of Sunnis who are being killed in Aleppo. And there are these videos that I've seen that are put out, uh, they're on social media, the news sites are covering them too, of uh, civilians in Aleppo who are more or less saying their goodbyes on different social media platforms because they don't expect to survive this bombardment. Yeah, and I think that that shows the, the scale of this. But but also, I think the question is, it's like an iceberg, right? There's only 10% of what we see. 90%, if you're surrounded, if the internet is cut, uh, there's, it's, a lim- it's a limited mechanism there to try and get information uh, out. But but this is, you know, this this is the blitz of Aleppo. And, and um, you know, it, it's at a humanitarian level, it's tragic, but... Uh, I have to say, I, I have some some have been praising Ambassador Powers, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., for her comments last night. Uh, for me, it's crocodile tears. They've known this is going on for two years. They have shown consistent unwillingness to even challenge Russia in the most basic areas. Um, I mean, they make Carter look like George Washington. Um, and so I, I just, I don't, it, 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 to me, it's, it's, it's a great stain on the moral conscience of this administration. Yeah, well, that, that's the part of this news story that I, I think uh, is, is is not getting very much attention, and that is that this is really uh, showing us what the end results of Obama's policy now, what, five years in in Syria, what we're really dealing with, or four years in Syria, what we're really dealing with here, and, and, and the inaction and the dithering and, and the lack of uh, of leadership People say those things, they talk about it, and after a while, I think it starts to sound like just sort of partisan griping to a lot of those who are just going about their day-to-day lives and are just seeing in the news. But there are very real consequences, and I think those consequences are becoming all too apparent for everyone to see in a city like Aleppo. Uh, we have over half a million that have been killed in the Syrian civil war, and now you have the sort of last pocket of resistance at Aleppo, 50,000 people that are trapped in one eastern portion of the city and all it is is one big bombing raid away from all those people uh, facing uh, death or or severe injury 
and the Obama administration saying, oh, look how sad this is. Well, you know, we are the lone superpower. We're the most powerful country in the world. The Obama administration's known about this for quite some time. They declared a red line. They said they were going to get the chemical weapons out of Syria. They said they were going to do something about this, and and they haven't. And, and I just think that, you know, it's fine if Obama wants to say at least U.S. troops are wa- walking the streets of, of homes in Hama and Aleppo, and and it, it is it is certainly worthwhile and right to take credit for that. But then there's the other side of this as well, which is there's a there's Something other than just all-out invasion of Syria probably could have been done to prevent what we're seeing right now, which is uh, a massacre, a massacre of the Syrian people. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. I mean, it is just, it it is a, it it does show exactly, I think, that idea. You know, we're hearing a lot at the moment about, uh, you know, the Russians in the election. And, you know, to be sure, though, I think, personally, I think there's a lot of, you know, concerning uh, elements in that. I mean, you know, Trump won. It's not, you know, the people who say that they, you know, get created votes, I think it's flying on a different planet. But but look, with the Russians, the, you know, rule number one is, and I know, you know, you talk to John Schenner a lot about this. It, it, it's credibility. It's about understanding that the Russians value uh, words that are rendered into action, that, that you cannot just simply say something. You have to be able to willing to back it up or don't say it at all. And and this is administration systemically, whether it be hacking, whether it be chemical weapons, uh, whether it be the barrel bombings, the starvation, whether it be the fake dealings in terms of ceasefires in both Syria and Ukraine, uh, they, they continually back off. And of course, Putin is, you know, it's the Russian realpolitik, the, you know, the Siberian storm, right, that you just push and push and push until uh, there's a pushback, and it, and it has not happened under this, this presidency. And, and I think Aleppo is a human metaphor uh, for that failure. Um, and it's the credibility matters. And I think it has to be said, you know, you, you note that, I think, importantly, but that a lot of people say, well, cr- credibility, you know, it's an amorphous thing that Republicans u- use when they don't understand the niceties of foreign policy. But I, you know, a couple of years ago, I had a bit of a exchange with, uh, I did a piece at National Review talking about the, the, why credibility matters. And I specifically challenged uh, Peter Beinart, who I think had written at The Atlantic. And he was saying that, no, credibility is, a, you know, individual things. States don't look at what the United States does somewhere else in terms of dealing how they're going to deal with the United States. But the functional reality is they do because they see as much as we, you know, as a businessman or whatever takes uh, a, a signal from what someone has done in their previous interactions. And um, I mean, this, this is basic stuff that, that you look and you value the weaknesses and strengths of an adversary and you try to use those to your advantage. And President Obama's, uh, you know, identity, I think, as a foreign policy leader has been one of uh, incessant malleability. And, and to, to Putin, I mean, that's just that's fuel to the fire. Yeah, the the door has been open here, has been opened, and I think that the Russians have clearly walked through it to take a much more active role in the Middle East. I mean, when you see what what really one of the great legacies, and by great I mean big, I don't mean awesome or cool, but one of the sort of major legacies of, of President Obama's foreign policy is going to be that by pulling back and sort of allowing things to take place without more of a, of a U.S. role, specifically in Iraq and the Middle East, you've seen very obvious and clear expansions of uh, Russian interventionism and militarism in the Middle East, uh, Iranian interventionism and militarism in the Middle East. And I, I think it's a reminder that 
you know, the, the left and, and, the, and the Democratic Party, which is now really a sort of uh, just a manifestation ideologically of the left, uh, takes this view that if, if the U.S. would just back off, there's this sort of equilibrium that would fall into place in foreign countries and in international relations and other parts of the world that essentially we muck things up. We're the problem. And if only we step back, then everything would work itself out in a happy way. When at a minimum, what happens when the U.S. is less involved is other players take a much more active role in the affairs of third party countries, meaning, you know, we do less in Iraq. The Iranians do a lot more. We do less in Syria. The Russians do a lot more. I mean, there, there is a, a sort of push pull on this that they never seem to recognize. And th- I think this is one of the great fallacies of leftist thinking on international relations is that if the U.S. only steps back, then everything sort of falls into this equilibrium and into place, when in reality it just invites China, Russia, you name it, other countries to take a much stronger hand, and that hurts U.S. interests and oftentimes the interests of the country we're talking about because I trust us a lot more than I trust the Russians or the Chinese to have the best interests of name your country. Uh, you know, and I think that's the reality. Absolutely. I, you know, I couldn't agree with you more. I've done a, a piece recently, you know, if I can give myself a shout out there, Tom Rogan, Lebanon, people can Google talking about the way that this happens behind the scenes and that you see the maneuvering in Lebanon by the Iranians. Um, I also have a piece out today talking about Saudi Arabia, the mismanagement there by the administration. And my point with the Saudis, I, I think, is you know, important one, because, look, we're dealing with some very unpleasant regimes, but realism demands that we act in a way that serves our own interests. And I think over the longer term, our values, and, and we're not doing that. Uh, and, you know, as you say, around the world where the United States does take this offset, look, I, I grew up as an American abroad, so I'm keenly aware of this. It's very, uh, around the world, there is this populist anti-Americanism, which, of course, the intellectual left uh, embraces takes as a sign. Yeah, no, so, I mean, the intellectual left has this idea that because of casual anti-Americanism around the world, uh, we must be to blame for everything, right? They go to Paris, they go to London, they speak to people, and they come back and say, well, let's just take a step back and invest more in multilateral institutions. Listening will help. Listening will change people. But the problem is, unless you practically act, you weaken the people, which is to say the political moderates, that you want to support. That you know, Behind the scenes in these capitals, whether it be Baghdad or Beirut, or you know, e- even across Europe, people want the United States to lead uh, with authority, because they know absent that, others with much more malevolent interests will jump into the gap uh, and do things to dilute uh, their interests and, and, you know, stability. And again, the, the proof, though, of this is without, you know, we can write our conflicting arguments. And this is why I think, um, you know, conservatives sort of have the initiative here, is that you simply ask people, do you feel the world is a safer place today uh, than it was uh, in 2008 or nine. Um, and and I, I just I don't think many people would say that they do find it safer. And that that comes from something. And I think it comes specifically from the fulfillment of a policy doctrine that believes American absence from the world is conducive both to America and the world in the long term. And I think the very opposite is seen to be true. It's not about reinvading. It's about learning the lessons of, you know, I- Iraq. But but it's about acting uh, with credibility and strength in a, may that, uh, in a way that is commensurate with what everyone in the world knows, which is the United States is the world's sole superpower. And I think that has been lost because it has not been practiced. Um, you know, you, you have to live up to what you say. I think this president would have done much better 
if he simply said, you know, I'm an isolationist, I don't really care about the world. Because at least at that point, enemies would have still doubted that, that perhaps there was a silent red line somewhere that they might not cross, right? Maybe Russia would have backed off a bit because, you know what, President Obama says he's disinterested in Syria, but hey, maybe on right. hacking. I mean, the, you're, you're totally right. On the, the worst thing with a bully is if you push me again, I'm going to punch you, and the bully pushes you again, and you do nothing. That's the worst thing. Exactly. Exactly. The boy who called Wolf, right? Yeah. You know, and it's... um. Yeah. Anyway, Obama foreign policy is going to be picked apart for decades to come. But I have to say, you know, that that it all hangs on the Iran deal as as flimsy as that is and as flawed as that is tells much of the tale. But but really, I think the sort of epitaph of the foreign policy of this administration is going to be uh, the countless dead and wounded in Syria with what is a U.S. response to any of this? a, A minimalist bombing campaign against ISIS? Nothing. Nothing at all, really, against Assad when you look at it. I mean, almost nothing. I mean, it's it's uh, it's pretty appalling. Uh, Tom, unfortunately, we're we're at time, man. But uh, everyone should go check out Tom's writing at nashreview.com. dot com. Tom uh, is on Twitter at uh, Tom R tweets, right? Tom R tweets, yeah, yes, Tom R tweets, and also Opportunity Lives. Tom, my friend, great to have you. Thanks for making time today. Thanks a lot, Buck. Have a good day. Uh, team, we'll be back to close it out. Stay with me. This is the Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show. Team, I think I've come to a pretty important decision. I've been thinking about it a lot recently. Um, and I was thinking it might coincide with the holiday season that uh, I might make the move around the holidays, but probably it's going to wait until maybe springtime or later. And I have to get a sense of a few things before I can totally pull the trigger on it, but I, I think it's time for Buck to get his own dog been really thinking about this a lot and and I've kind of settled on I want I want either an English bulldog or an English bulldog mix and maybe I can go find one that I can rescue somewhere but um that's what I'd like to do I'm thinking English bulldog John do you have a favorite kind of dog what do you like dogs what's your deal and we never talked about dogs before let me turn on my mic <laughs> Yeah, John's uh, turning on his mic. Do you like dogs? Well, I kind of like Just say mutts. yes, because otherwise yeah, people do. are going to think you're weird. No, so, yeah, I, do, okay, I do like dogs. There we um, go. Kind of like mutts. Um, my friend yeah, had like mixed, a... Yeah, we, we call ja- them mixed breeds. Check this out. Yes. She had a Jack Russell Corgi mix. It had this huge Jack Russell head and a, a Corgi behind. It was kind of weird. It was a weird look, little dog, but he was very friendly, very nice. A corgi, a corgi behind. So that's like it's like the dog. It's like junk in the trunk, right? It's like big corgis are big. Yeah, and he had a Jack Russell head, and it was huge. It was huh. he, he was uh, a nice. weird. He was a weird looking dog, but very friendly. Yeah, hey, friendly is all that really matters. At the end of the day, but yeah, I'm thinking about. Uh, I'm thinking English bulldog is probably the way I'm gonna end up going. Which I know that people say they have health problems, so maybe a mixed breed English bull would be better, but. I think it's time. I need a little. I need a little friend to keep me company here in the uh, in the Freedom Hut. A little furry friend. It'd be kind of fun. Maybe you'll hear him barking during the show. So I've really been thinking about this. If you have any, uh, if any of you know any fantastic English bull breeders, by the way, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Give me a holler. Uh, I think I'm joining Tommy tonight on her show, which would be great. Always fun to hang out with Tommy on the Blaze TV. So if you get a chance, you can tune into that. And uh, other than that, we'll be back live in the Freedom Hut tomorrow. 
Excited we got through three hours of today's show. Of course, Shields High. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.